Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I am your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Dr. Albert Moeller. Dr. Moeller is the ninth president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary located here in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Moeller has addressed the topic of corporate worship at various times throughout his ministry, including our 2016 conference. In this clip, taken from a 1999 chapel service at Southern Seminary, Dr. Moeller is preaching on Colossians 3, 15 through 17, and he addresses the question, what is a hymn? John Piper recently delivered the Mullins Lectures here elsewhere, taking on those who completely dismiss praise choruses, reminds us that a generation raised on do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me, is in no position to be very critical and dismissive of contemporary (laughs) praise worship. Now we do have to admit that much of what goes under this category is patently awful, both in content and in form. But some of it is magnificent and God-honoring. And discrimination is certainly needed here. We need to sing that song which is Scripture-formed, which is scriptural in its essence, which has some weight and some substance and some beauty to it. Some of the praise choruses are crude, simplistic, and self-directed. And so are many of the songs we call hymns. But we do not recognize that which we like for its faults. The critical issue here is theology and not taste. Music is a language, and this language must be used in a God-honoring way. The definitions are often very arbitrary. I have sought to define or to gain an understanding of exactly what a hymn is in its current parlance. I'm not sure exactly what one is. The Hymn Society of America defines a hymn. They define it this way, and listen carefully, take notes. A hymn is a lyric poem reverently conceived and designed to be sung, which expresses the worshiper's attitude to God or God's purposes in human life. It should be simple and metrical in form, genuinely emotional, poetic and literary in style, spiritual in quality, and its ideas so direct and so immediately apparent as to unify a congregation while singing it. Well, do you disagree with any part of that? I apologize, but that bears all the marks of a definition written by a committee. And my guess is that if you got up and recited this definition as accurate as it undoubtedly is, the average congregation would not come up with hymn as the word they're being defined. Well, the Hymn Society evidently recognizes the problem, and in the same document, they offered a shorter definition of a hymn, quote, a congregational song. Well, forgive me again, but from the maximalism of the first, we now have the minimalism of the second. There must be something in between. Augustine defined a hymn as a praise to God with singing or a song of praise to God. That certainly is a good place to start. Jeffrey Wainwright at Duke Divinity School very helpfully defines a hymn as a sung confession of faith. 
I think that is the most appropriate definition of a hymn I have yet found. It is a confession of faith set to song. It reminds us that hymns and theology are inescapably intertwined. There is a musical element. It must be sung. There is a congregational element. It is to be sung by the church. There is a subjective element. We are to sing from the affections of the heart reflected in the resounding noise of the congregation. But there is ultimately and most importantly an objective element, which is the faith being confessed. Because of this, many of the church's most significant theologians have been hymn writers. I want to make two assertions to you this morning very quickly. One, a hymn without theological content is no true hymn. And secondly, a theology that cannot be sung is no true theology. Something has happened when in our day, theologians do not write hymns, and many hymn writers do not know theology. We look back to mentors and models such as Gregory the Great and his hymn, Father, We Praise Thee. Thee all of Orleans, all glory, laud, and honor. Bernard of Clairvaux, Jesus, the very thought of thee, and O sacred head now wounded. Clement of Alexandria, Ambrose of Milan, Basil the Great, Prudentius, and the Reformation, Luther, who was not only an advocate of hymns, but a hymn writer. We are reminded that it was just about one century before the Great Reformation that in 1415 at the Council of Constance, the Catholic Church ordered that there be no hymn singing by the laity. This was the same council that ordered John Huss to be burned, you may be reminded. The edict stated this, and I quote, if laymen are forbidden to preach and interpret the scripture, much more are they forbidden to sing publicly in the church. Well, grant them this at least, the virtue of consistency. They understood the link between scripture and song. Along came Luther, who not only nailed his theses to the door, but in his own pithy and pointed way, said that he would not trust a theologian who could not sing. That explains the new song test for faculty at Southern Seminary. <laughs> I fear that by that measure, there must be some remediation uh, brought, brought as a faculty ambition. Luther wrote hymns, not only a mighty fortress, but many others. Listen to this one, in one true God we all believe, Listen to the words. In one true God we all believe, maker of the earth and heaven, who us as children to receive hath himself as father given. Now and henceforth he will feed us. Soul and body will surround us. Against mischances he will heed us. Not shall meet us, that shall wound us. He watches o'er us, cares, defends, and everything is in his hands. And we believe in Jesus Christ, his own son, our Lord and master, who beside the father highest reigns in equal might and glory born of Mary, virgin mother, by the Spirit's operation, he was made our elder brother, that the lost might find salvation, slain on the cross by wicked men and raised by God to life again. We all confess the Holy Ghost with the Father and the Savior, who the fearful comforts most and the meek doth crown with favor. All of Christendom he even in one heart and spirit keepeth, here all sin shall be forgiven. Wake too shall the flesh that sleepeth after these sufferings, there shall be life for us eternally. Now, what happens to a people formed by the singing of this kind of substance? They learn the incarnation. They learn biblical Christology. They learn the doctrine of the Trinity. They learn to trust in God. In Geneva, Calvin's Reformation led in the recovery of the Psalter, which formed in so many ways our own tradition. 
We claim the tradition of Watts and Wesley and of the Baptists who've written so many hymns and contributed so much. In our own Baptist tradition, we have a succession of hymnals, each received with fear and trepidation until it has become the standard hymnal. And now in our churches, there is more confusion than tradition. We have been shaped by the evangelical awakening, and we have been shaped by revivalism as well. Revivalism has brought us great gain in the cross-centeredness of so much of our song, When I Survey the Rugged Cross, on the old rugged cross. But there's been loss as well in the self-centeredness of so many of these songs and the subjectivity. So many do not teach the whole gospel. Well, what about our current context? There's so much confusion and controversy. At least part of the problem is that hymn writers are not now uniformly theologians, and theologians take little responsibility for hymn writing. I would suggest, as we conclude, that there is a new opportunity for the church in this generation to show what it means to sing the church's song, the Lord's song, in a new era, claiming the same eternal truths of Scripture. Neither the traditionalists nor the revolutionaries can claim to fulfill the exhortations of Colossians 3.16. We have in this generation an opportunity to recover what has been lost and to develop an understanding of church music that is theological, biblical, and truly relevant to the people of God. If not, I fear we will sing what pleases us rather than what pleases God. We will absolutize our preferences and comfort zone. Traditionalists will sing great hymns, play their pipe organs, and look down their noses at the chorus singers. Praise and worship revolutionaries will blast their praise bands and sing their choruses, looking down at the hymn singers and their outdated and out-of-touch approach. The danger is that we will sing songs of no theological content or of dangerous theological content, that we will lose the great body of sacred truth and beautiful expression which resides in the church's hymns, that we will dismiss a new hymnody in the praise and worship movement without recognizing its great gains and gift to the church that we will fail to fulfill the mandate of Colossians 3.16. We will fail to teach and to admonish one another with song. We will fail to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We will rob ourselves of witness, of joy, of consolation, and of exhortation as we sing. We are told that the MTV generation can develop no taste or no ear for the great tradition. I refuse to believe that that is so. We are also told that the traditionalists are so hidebound and determined to resist change that they will not welcome a new song, no matter how scriptural. I refuse to believe that it is so. The MTV generation and the GI generation and Generation X and the generations to follow must be confronted with the exhortation of Colossians 3.16, with the reason we sing, with the song that we sing, with the joy that we sing. Elizabeth Elliot, in January of 1956, was sitting with four other women, waiting in a dark room to find out if their husbands were alive. Many of you know the story as Jim Elliot and four companions were slaughtered, martyred by Indians. By her own testimony, she found herself in bed in the dark with a sick daughter beside her, not knowing if her husband was at that moment dead or alive. Later testimony, she said that what got her through the night was a hymn, How Firm a Foundation, 
with the words taken from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2. It was scripture set to song. And in the dark she remembered these words, Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, never forsake. Elizabeth Elliot reminds us that that kind of hymn will get you through the night. And as the night yet approaches, the question is, will what we sing get us through the night and more importantly, prepare us for eternity? Well, that's a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear the rest of this message from Dr. Albert Moeller entitled, Does God Care What We Sing? Go to our website, biblicalworship.com, and click podcast. Click around to find the show notes for season one, episode three, and we are happy to share with you the entire thing. That is what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by Evan Jarms, engineered by Mark Norris and... Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friends at Murphy DX. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westrom reminding you that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. Peace be with you.